Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. Hello again, I'm Brad Davis, and joining me as always is uh, William Lombardo for another episode of Phrenesis. This week, we are going to be discussing Walter Benjamin's essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. And today we have a special guest, Max Nussenbaum, from the On Deck Writers Fellowship, uh, who's going to be discussing this with us. Max, want to first uh, give us a bit of background on yourself, tell us about On Deck and what you're working on, uh, and what's up with the Writers Fellowship? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited for this one. It's a great essay, and I think it's going to be a great conversation. Uh, so I've had a, a background that's all over the place as a mix of uh, writer, startup founder, community builder, a uh, couple other random things here and there. Uh, but I'm currently running uh, the On Deck Writer Fellowship, which is uh, an eight-week uh, paid program for uh, internet writers who want to uh, become, uh, you know, hone their craft, uh, but also grow their audience and become part of a, an incredible community of other writers. We can sort of think about it as like almost like a startup accelerator for independent writers, right? So if you want to uh, have a successful blog or newsletter, whether success means making money directly from your writing, whether it just means having a great community of readers, maybe it means supercharging your career through what you write about. There's a lot more that you have to do well to succeed at that than just being a good writer, right? That's one component of it, but you also have to think about things like branding, finding your niche, growth and distribution, how you're going to have a relationship with your audience. And so uh, we're sort of a modern education program and community that's focused on, on becoming a successful internet writer from sort of a holistic standpoint. Uh, and we're part of On Deck, uh, which is a, a, a broader company that's sort of building the, the future of online education. Uh, you can kind of think of us as like, what's the equivalent of uh, trying to build at least the equivalent of like a Stanford in the cloud or Silicon Valley in the cloud or like, uh, you know, Gertrude Stein's uh, 1920s Paris Salon in, in the cloud. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, I think, why I'm especially excited to be uh, talking about this essay because uh, I think it has a, a, a lot of resonance in, you know, our sort of modern modern age and into the world of technology. Absolutely. Uh, I had a friend that did, uh, I think, the first iteration of the On Deck Writers Fellowship, and I heard great things about it. It seems like a really cool program. And so excited to see you guys grow, keep working on it. And I imagine a lot of great writers are going to come out of there. Um, so to that end, let's let's dig in. Normally, sort of the, the first thing I ask when we have guests is uh, why they chose a particular essay. I, I actually suggested this one to you, uh, Max, but, but you seemed... Uh, to be really excited to, to pick up uh, this essay again from Benjamin. So what was it? Um, why were you so excited about this? Or, or what was your interest going into this? Why, why did you think this would be a cool thing to hit on? Yeah, well, there's, there's a, a couple reasons. I mean, one is, I think, I mean, this essay was sort of... Uh, so predictive and, and resonant of, you know, so many trends that are still happening to this day in, in digital art and culture. And so I felt like it was a, a really good fit for, I mean, just these times, but also specifically 
very thematically similar to, in certain ways, with what we're doing at, at On Deck, uh, which is sort of, you know, uh, trying to democratize the art of, of internet writing. The other reason was that uh, there have been a couple of things, uh, sort of pieces of, of modern technology or culture, you could say, uh, that, I, that I think are really connected in interesting ways to this essay that, that maybe we'll dive into. One is uh, the, the rise of NFTs, non, non-fungible tokens, which I don't know if you guys are familiar with, but they're basically a way to ascribe uh, sort of provenance and uniqueness to digital art. Um, and the second is the rise of meme culture, which I also think connects to this essay in, in really interesting, in interesting ways. So yeah, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of modern resonance with some stuff going on in sort of the, the intersection of the art and technology world that's connected to, to both my job and to this work. One of my favorite things about this, um, and, and I suppose we'll unpack this in a little bit, but Benny Mean approaches the idea of art with sort of uh, two, uh, with a pair of homonyms in mind. And uh, kind of the first half of this essay, he's talking about a mass, as in uh, the, the religious mass, the Catholic mass, and the understanding of art as a fundamentally ritualistic experience. Musical settings by Bach and others being used um, as art in a religious experience but even earlier back the use of uh, statues of Venus he mentions here and elsewhere are being fundamentally a tool of ritual whereas with the onset of mechanical reproduction in various ways whether uh, printing press lithograph uh, photographs now all the various forms of mass media there's a new sense of mass uh, in terms of a, a mass of, of people and, and a sense of quality uh, a quantity uh, rather uh, than ritual being the primary attachment to art in the way it's understood quantity of eyes on a piece of media uh, amount of attention something receives uh, the ability to sort of dominate uh, a field of art uh, by any particular work becomes the metrics uh, of interest rather than sort of a fundamental ritualistic experience uh, with the work. Will, maybe do you want to start off and discuss what ritual means to Benjamin and some of the things in the preface he, he goes through? Yeah, so uh, we... We did a prior episode on uh, Benjamin's uh, thesis on the concept of of, of history, uh, and and um, the way we framed it um, was that you know Benjamin wasn't an orthodox orthodox Marxist, um, but he he ran in, in in circles that were, and and this is a this is a time that uh, again as we mentioned then the uh, sort of revolutionary consciousness of the proletariat seemed to have dissipated, uh, especially in Germany, where um, uh, by this time in 1936, when this essay had written, um, they had been all but crushed by the Nazis. Um, and uh, so the only real su- success of you know any kind of communist party in the West is in the Soviet Union. Um, and so Benjamin is in the kind of first generation of thinkers, you know, asking why, how does Marx need to be updated? Uh, you know, to account for the fact that his predictions um, haven't borne out. Uh, And and so, um, 
Benjamin says right away he's going to look at what he calls the superstructure. Uh, and so, you know, in Marx's terminology, the structure is the relations of production uh, in society, the class structure of society, and the superstructure uh, is what grows on top of that. We can think of things like art, religion, and philosophy. Uh, what Hegel calls the higher things are the, are the superstructure, and how the superstructure can, um, you know, have a, have a real actual causal effect in maintaining the structure. Uh, and so, what Benjamin wants to look at is. Uh, you know, how, so, you know, Marx thinks that, you know, the logic of capital, capitalism will play out um, and eventually uh, so the conditions for its own dissolution or its own overthrow, I should say. Uh, and and so Benjamin's going to look at how, you know, art as a component of the superstructure, this logic, he thinks at least, is going to play out in and of itself. Um, and I guess to lay the thesis out, which we can then unpack, um, it's that by, uh, and Max mentioned democratizing art in a way, um, it can uh, mature or develop the critical capacities of the proletariat um, such that it will end up developing a revolutionary consciousness um, it, you know, that, that will hasten the end um, of capitalism. And he thinks film is the example par excellence of, of how that will happen. And another sort of phrasing, even from the get-go, but uh, brought out uh, at length in the epilogue for just that, is sort of between the ideological tensions of fascism and communism, the former fascism brings along an aestheticization of politics, making uh, life, politics, governance, particularly war, into an attempted thing of beauty, an attempted work of art in life. And on the other hand, a politicization of art for the revolutionary demands of the proletariat for for change. So the, the, there's the, the foil of politics being made into art and art being made into politics. And that's a really interesting tension um, going throughout this. And, and you know, you mentioned, you mentioned so, so the question then arises, so we've laid, we've laid out the thesis here. How does art, A, democratize, which is basically how do the material conditions change, um, you know, such that art becomes a thing that... Um, not, you know, not, not, not just touches everyone's, but that's consumed by everyone. Um, he talks about, you know, people have an idea to be as near something as possible. They can't stand a distance. Um, and then, and then how does it happen that, um, you know, by that happening, uh, people's critical capacities are developed. And you mentioned ritual and the, uh, decline of ritual as the source of the authority of art is the, um, you know, how you get to people's critical capacities developing. Um, and so, you know, he says, um, you know, pretty bluntly that, you know, art in the past developed in concert with ritual. It was made to serve a ritual function. And uh, it was unique. That's what he terms authenticity, uh, you know, of art. Um, and that it has this aura, which is a kind of afterlife. Um, the, a, a tradition uh, accrues on top of it. And, and part of the kind of, you know, mystery, the authority of this particular piece of art is uh, its authenticity and its aura, 
Um, and, 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 you know, it, it can be used in a way basically to dominate people. Uh, I mean, it, it, I think that's how he thinks about how, uh, ritual, uh, you know, which before it was separated from politics served a religion, uh, uh, re- sorry, ritual served a political purpose before those two things separated. Um, and then it's really used as a tool of oppression or domination or something like that. And so, uh, you know, in, in a way, um, you know, chipping away at the authority uh, you know, of, of art. Uh, and when people see that it starts, uh, shipping away, that it's authority starts to be reduced, uh, then, you know, they start to become, uh, you know, as he says, critics, everyone gets to become a movie critic. And I think it's, um, I think it's so interesting to think about how, I mean, you think about that sort of prediction, uh, and it's, I think it's, it's so clearly played out in the, you know, what, all just under, you know, all 90 years or so since, uh, since this essay was, was written, um, and uh, I think it's actually, it's interesting to connect this to the modern era and think about how I would say this has actually gone even one step further than was predicted in, in this essay, right? You see Benjamin predict uh, how that sort of, you know, every, as you said, everyone is going to, to become a, a critic. I mean, he, he talks about how he loves uh, the, the cinema because it's, uh, you know, uh, everyone in the audience is sort of placed into the role of, of a film critic. And it's not, your, your experience of a film is not, you know, mediated through this, this aura or, or ritual. I think what, what we've seen happen now is that it's actually even gone one step further. And not only has everyone become a, a critic, but everyone has become a producer or an artist themselves. I mean, what I find it so fascinating to connect the, the, some of the concepts in this work to meme culture, where the entire concept, I think in, in meme culture, the entire distinction even between being a consumer of memes and a producer of memes kind of kind of breaks down, right? I mean, how how do you engage if we're gonna, if you'll, you know, humor me and let's let's treat memes as a form of art, which I think at least some of them are. Um, and engaging uh, with a meme involves not necessarily just consuming it, but actually becoming um, a, cre- a creator or an expander like of the same meme, meme yourself. And in fact, the meme as a work of art, I would say doesn't even really refer to any specific instance of a meme but it really the artwork itself is actually the collection of of all the takes on on that meme and perhaps even it's the 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 art is actually the sort of societal interaction and that process of of collaborative uh creation um i I don't know that that was what uh you know i hadn't read this essay in about 10 years uh, until i sat down to reread it for, for for this podcast and and i was so struck by the way that uh, you know, digital technology, which is the the, the ultimate extension of, of uh, the type of mechanical production that was starting to happen in, in Benjamin's era, has has taken this like even one step further than than he saw. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's interesting. You uh, you know, you mentioned you know, I consider at least some memes to be art or something because that that's sort of the way you know he was confronted with film when he wrote this, and he doesn't actually justify it with any kind of recourse to traditional aesthetic theory or something. Um, You know, it's not that uh, there's any mimetic value to, uh, you know, film, which was sort of the Renaissance idea of art, or there was genius behind it, which is the Kantian idea. Um, And he just brushes aside people who try to make it more than it is and, uh, you know, connect it to, you know, it's in the same vein as Greek tragedy. And, you know, he also brushes away the people say, oh, no, it can't possibly be art. But he doesn't give a definition of what he's working with, really. So, uh, you know, um, you, you know, he just kind of accepts that it is, uh, you know, which is in- interesting, uh, you know, to me as the forms change. Um, and I think we would grant that film uh, is art, although, you know, 
someone like Martin Scorsese might say that some of it isn't, uh, right? But uh, but a- a- as a medium, it is at least. Um, and you know what? And Brad and I were talking about this earlier. What what's the difference between you know art and entertainment? You know, one of which is made to kind of uh, numb or sedate, and you know, one of which can. Uh, you know, ignite our capacity for critique. That's such an interesting way for him to sort of take that stance because as with some of the examples you mentioned, I mean, the typical way, anytime there's a new medium and there's this sort of cultural debate about, is this art? I mean, you could compare it to video, the current debate about whether video games are art. The typical way that defenders of the idea that that new medium is art would approach their position is they make sort of lofty claims, right? I mean, you'll read people who will methodically argue that video games can stimulate the spirit or uh, the same as film or, or, or tell as deep of a story as, as a great novel. And he doesn't really do any of that. He's, he's not, he doesn't make film out to be the equivalent of these other lofty art forms. He's not trying to make it more than it is. He's not even really trying to even sell it for what it is. He just sort of takes this, position of almost radical acceptance where it just is what it is and and he and it's sort of a fate accompli that that's art and he's not he doesn't he doesn't try to sort of measure it by the standards of of the old thing which i think is pretty uncommon for how people defend an, a new art form i i think you're right about that max and interesting well you you're you're right i i was struggling earlier uh after rereading this about sort of the distinctions between art and entertainment. But I'm not sure Benjamin sees those as as clearly severable uh, uh, categories. Towards the end, he's discussing about the use of art as a distraction in itself, which, which art that's distracting is, is probably the thing that would first uh, come to my mind as a definition of entertainment. But to him, that it seems one and, and the same. Uh, but... A little earlier, Max, I I think you were right on uh, with the discussion of memes. And, and I think Benjamin is seeing the same process play out uh, in film, interestingly. Uh, he's talking about the progression from stage actors to film actors. And they're... In theater and opera, the audience being present has a role in part of the performance the the actor or singer is to a greater or lesser degree changing their performance based on uh the reaction of the audience sometimes giving it more sometimes pulling back but there's this weird thing that happens when you put the camera in between the actor and the audience and that's the actor is no longer acting for the sake of the audience they are acting for the sake of the camera and the audience isn't responding to the actor they're they're responding to the image made up of the uh, actor and he talks a little bit about how this creates kind of a cult of personality or, or uh, the trends we normally see with with celebrity fame but also there's it's creating I don't even know the best way to describe this. Perhaps a meta-characterization of the object uh, of art in a way similar to memes. Generally, uh, in uh, 
looking at, analyzing, laughing at, generally enjoying a meme, it's not so much um, the actual work of the creator, I think, that we're reacting to, but sort of the medium of interplay between the creator and us, whether that's uh, social media or um, the very, very strong archetypes and, and tropes uh, of memes counter uh, artistic culture. I, I think there's an interesting way in which particularly the ironic nature uh, of memes is captured in a sense uh, by the camera in film insofar as we know that the actor isn't actually acting for us the actor knows that he's not actually acting for us but there's a sense where everyone just pretends that's not not quite the case and there's an irony there that seems um seems quite similar to me yeah i think that's totally right i i think i mean there there's a weird way in, in which you might almost say that a meme is is both the it's like both the film and both the, the work of film and also the camera at the same time kind of went through that analysis. And, and I think there's a, a but there's a, yet there's another element in which, in a way, I think memes are almost actually a return to the performer audience interaction that Benjamin describes as having taken place in the theater, except that it's, it's sort of like distributed, right? No individual creator is directly reacting to the audience in real time. But the collection of creators who make different variations on a meme as it evolves are doing so in response to sort of the collected responses of a of a global audience. So yeah, I think there's a couple there's a couple like really interesting parallels there. I, I think I think you're right. That 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 is stating it a little better. There's this odd part in uh, section eight that I don't quite know what to make of that I, I think is relevant to this discussion of memes and sort of their, their mass construction, where Benjamin's talking about how there's all sorts of optical tests and screen tests that are performed in the production of a film. They take the time to evaluate different camera angles, different close-ups, uh, panning shots, all sorts of different techniques are constantly being used in the production of a film and being evaluated against one another in a way. A stage production, your seat in the audience determines how you're going to perceive it. But film is constantly changing the angle of perception of the same sort of acting. In in a way that's maybe akin to to people constantly uh, modifying and changing uh, the the tropes of memes. I I don't know if that quite works, and maybe I'm getting too bogged down in this uh, comparison. But but the idea of testing and then recalibrating and testing and recalibrating is something that's available in mechanically re reproduced art in a work like a film or in photography or things on the internet that's not quite possible in older forms. I mean, I, I, the one, the one thing that I think, um, you know, he's the change that he identifies as occurring at the beginning of the 19th century is art becomes marketized, right? You have the, you have the material means to 
reproduce it in mass and it becomes suggested to or, or sorry subjected to artistic or to market pressure um so there is a demand to consume these things and you know this is the inner interplay that leads to this um <clears throat> I, I mean i guess you know one thing i wonder is has you know internet art which you know within which we might uh, rope in memes or something um seems to be less marketized than that in terms of we kind of just do it for fun um um and I, I i don't know whether that's somehow then you know unmoored from the the logic of capitalism that he seems so attached to art um or if it you know uh you know or how that how that operates kind of within the I'll call it the internet art culture more broadly because there's some other things that that fit under this umbrella also. Yeah, that's a great uh, a great point to 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 bring up. And I think, well, I mean, I think there's a couple ways that you 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 can look at it. One is that you could look at the world of um, likes or retweets or all the other types of reactions that a meme could get as almost sort of a a, a like funhouse mirror capitalist market, right? Uh, where 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 they sort of are, are direct stand-ins for 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 you know money. Um, th- I mean that might be a, a little bit too too obvious. Um, I, but I also think that there's this element where so many memes are, although maybe not made in a capitalist context, a context are sort of directly or indirectly engaging with. Uh, sort of concepts of late capitalism, a, a phrase I actually don't like because I think it implies that we're near the end, which which is probably not true. But like, I think about, I mean, my all-time favorite meme is the distracted boyfriend meme. I'm sure you're familiar with this, right? It's a stock photo of like a, a, a boyfriend, a, a boy holding a girl's hand, but he's looking over at another girl and people will label it with, you know, different things. I think my favorite one is the, uh, uh, the, uh, is there, the, the, the labels are like, uh, a sinful life and uh like jesus christ my my lord and savior um but even though that that meme is made it's not made for money i mean people are just making it for kicks like it's the 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 subtext or the meta text you might say is like it's all a play on the fact that this is this preposterous stock photo and like what what world have capitalism wrought that like some company staged this photo and thought that there would be a need to sell it for other company to other companies and like what context would, would this possibly be, be used in so I think in a way, uh, like, you know, meme culture does does speak to that. Thanks for bringing it back into the, the idea of the, most of these stock photos, these images are intended to be products that, that people presumably are, are buying for their own own marketing ends. And that that I think relates very well to this interesting image Benjamin has in here where he compares the old ritualistic sense of art and the new uh, mass media, easily reproducible sense of art to trying to heal someone. And he uh, relates the, the older form of art to the idea of, to the image of a magician, a, a sorcerer, a wizard, uh, someone who's able to lay hands on someone and through some spell might be able to cure them but there's a sense in which the natural space between the um, artist and the object of the art is maintained 
the a painter is not a painter painting a landscape doesn't become part of that landscape in the same way uh, someone observing a landscape from their perspective isn't a, a part of it. But the new sense in healing that we use is no longer the, this old sense of magic and laying on of hands, but that of a surgeon, a surgeon that cuts into the body, makes changes inside of the body uh, through his own force and intention, removes, obstructs, or adds to the environment he's working in. And in the same way, uh, a film director is constantly placing himself inside the work of art, rechanging things that don't quite fit his ideal of what the image should reappear. Uh, Benjamin talks about being able to constantly reshoot things, or uh, if a actor doesn't have a sense of surprise when they're supposed to you can take another shot fire a gun above their head and they'll actually be surprised and you can splice it right in the film director is able to create the art in what he considers to be the ideal instead of a representation of what what's actual and that is the same and and that's the sense of the surgeon uh, reconstituting health in the workings of the body as is seen both most fit. It seems like in particularly this very irony-heavy internet art culture, there's a great sense of imposition and constantly restructuring the environs to be what we think should be ideal or, or what's most, most beautiful, not a representation uh, with a natural distance, it, it's placing ourselves wholly inside discourse and, and sort of reworking it in our own image or reworking our image in, in how we sense uh, others might find it most appealing or, or most likely to generate uh, clicks, likes, follows and such. There's this collapse uh, of the natural distance. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that's a continuation of the logic and I want to criticize this logic in a minute um but i the 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 simple way of saying this is that benjamin thinks the the new kind of art serves to disenchant things um <clears throat> in that you know if you're performing art for a ritual there's an air of of mystery or of uh um you know that 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 distance serves to increase what he calls the aura and so um and so, you know, whatever ritual or object the art seems to serve remains enchanted. Um, and that, you know, film by basically, you know, slicing everything up and getting right up near it uh, serves to, you know, continue the process of disenchantment that, I mean, Marx talks about it with quite a lot of ambivalence. Um, but I think Benjamin thinks it's necessary to disenchant things so that they lose their authority and can be subjected to criticism. And of course you know, irony, culture, and things like that are, if you ask people what they're doing with it, they'll say that their intended purpose is to be subversive. Um, and, and this is the angle I want to criticize all this from later, because I don't think it, or where has it worked basically, but we can, I mean, we can keep that at arm's length for a minute, um, and say that in, you know, in the sense that, uh, you know, film serves to, serves to disenchant its object, or at least getting it. You know, he talks about people have a kind of sense, a sense perception that 
corresponds to different epics in history um and that 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 film is kind of giving birth to a new sensorium um and i mean w- one way to think about that is you 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 look at things in a disenchanted way um and, and and so they lose their authority they lose their mystery their power to to dominate or to hold sway or something like that um and that i think in that sense i think you're right that 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 logic still um persists and that there's kind of no or very few at least sacred cows that you can't you know find someone willing to to meme online so maybe in that sense our critical capacities have developed and the past 80 some odd years since the essay was written. Yeah, I think, you know, one, one other way of looking at this or a related way is, is that, uh, that sort of, uh, you know, gap between artist and uh, consumer or recipient of the art, uh, is shrinks over time or with new technologies. Right. I mean, we were discussing section eight earlier where, uh, Benjamin talks about how the, the audience takes the position of the, of the critic because they're really identifying with the camera. Right, they're they're thinking about sort of their perspective as the camera, and and one way I've always read that is that um, these sort of forms of, of mechanical reproduction or creation of art make the demystify the artistic creation process for the the watcher or the consumer. Right, if if you know a lot about theater, you can watch a play, and you might actually be thinking about uh, you know, like I used to be really into theater, did a lot of it in college. I watch a play, and I'm thinking about the staging decisions and where the director had the actors hit their marks. But like, if you aren't educated or familiar with that, you won't think that. Whereas with a film, the, the, the choices like camera cuts and editing are so obvious that no education or prior knowledge is required to sort of start thinking in, in, in that way. And I mean, I think uh, meme culture again, represents a, a continuation of that where like the, 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 the difference between the creator and the consumer is essentially completely collapsed while, while some, you know, obviously some people don't actually make memes. They, they just consume them, but essentially everyone, at least in in theory can be a a creator. It's an an interactive process. And also the, there's an often intentional shoddiness to the, the quality, right? Like no one is many people who make memes are actually amazing Photoshop experts, but they'll still use, you know, uh, paste a, a black block over some existing text and write in new text in a different font. And that's an intentional stylistic choice that highlights the, um, uh, the, the sort of method of production instead of obscuring it as would be done in like more, more often more traditional art. Um, and I, I just see that as like a, 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 a further extension of what Benjamin's talking about here. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, that's, a, that's interesting. I'm also going to import a concept that he wouldn't, that he wouldn't use. Cause I, so is demystifying the production. Um, so, I mean, it, you know, in one sense, there's a, a, you know, kind of just the process of producing. So that's where, you know, we're talking about camera work being done um, that, you know, that if you're kind of familiar with film and people assume they are who are watching, they can kind of see what's happening with the camera. They don't think they're fooled by it. Um, but there's also a substantive element to it, um, which, and I mean, w- one thing about, I guess, starting from memes and working back Memes are very readily interpretable. Uh, you don't, you don't, it, you don't need to. And Benjamin talks about this. You don't need to sit and contemplate it for an hour. Um, and that that contemplation it doesn't doesn't fit well with the democratization of art. It's supposed to be seen, and you instantly understand what they're talking about. So one thing that's accompanied by this is the removal for the need to interpret 
the art as well. And so, and I don't, this definitely isn't true of all film because there are clearly, there's some movies that are really, really hard to understand. You know, what, what, what are they driving at? Require a lot of interpretive work. But I think what he's talking about here is also that at least the idea, um, you know, that people can in principle interpret all things, um, you know, all, and, and it's not just artistic phenomenon, phenomena, uh, because you know, because he's clearly that thinking this is just a, a primer to be able to interpret political or social phenomena, things like that, um, and and I think you know, in, in in that way, the sort of you know, internet communication or something, even Twitter, it doesn't, and I, I'm not going to uh, you know flatter that by giving it the term art or something, um, but but you know, but at the same time, it's it's not supposed to leave a lot of room for you to sit and kind of work through what it means to do an active interpretation or something. You're supposed to instantly know what you're looking at, get the point. Um, and I, and I, I think that's partly what he means by, um, or by what you term demystifying the process of its creation. So I'd like to briefly read a paragraph uh, from Benjamin that I think does a great job of serving sort of an encapsulation of what you both have been discussing. He writes, it is inherent in the technique of the film, as well as that of sports, that everybody who witnesses its accomplishments is somewhat of an expert. This is obvious to anyone listening to a group of newspaper boys leaning on their bicycles and discussing the outcome of a bicycle race. It's not for nothing that newspaper publishers arrange races for their delivery boys. These arouse great interest among the participants, for the victor has an opportunity to rise from delivery boy to professional racer. Similarly, the newsreel offers everyone the opportunity to rise from passerby to movie extra. In this way, any man might even find himself part of a work of art. Any man today can lay claim to being filmed. This claim can best be elucidated by a comparative look at the historical situation of contemporary literature. So the ease, ever-increasing ease of uh being in these works of art really changes the way of perception, but I think even a step further, we're discussing, uh, I previously was discussing the role of the camera in between actor and audience, and maybe the sense of irony uh, that creates. But I think with the vast majority of our film, particularly the various uh, stories and clips uploaded to Instagram, Snapchat, uh, live streams, and otherwise, reduce the camera in the, in the technical space between the actor or or the uh subject uh, of, of the work and the audience to an even even smaller degree and i think it provides a sense where we sometimes forget that there is a camera mediating the experience uh various major news events we've had in the past a uh, year or so as you're watching particularly live streams of it or, or raw footage uh, online, not only do you feel, the, uh, feel like you're in the position of an expert in terms of uh, criticizing the production of that, but it feels like you're actually present in the event itself. It feels like you're actually there storming the Capitol or uh, protesting in Paris or all these various events the virtual space that the camera, uh, the camera inhabits, feels to me like it's kind of disappeared, 
And I think that has to really change our relation to, to the work of art itself. Okay, so th- I, this is, I think this has primed us, you know, well to get at, um, you know, what has, so it, it's not just, uh, so, you know, clearly the, the logic, there's a logic in this that has played out in terms of, you know, further democratization, further, you know, I guess, simplification of art media, uh, you know, less need for interpretation, um, something something like that. And those are all things he identifies, although we can maybe say that that's sort of just the further, uh, you know, playing out of marketized art. Um, but that's that's not the only thing he says is going to happen. I mean, he, he clearly thinks this this uh, this art will be the way where, you know, the, the masses can rediscover a revolutionary potential and 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 you know that's where the revolution will come from that that you know their, their consciousness will be primed uh for revolution through marketized art and it will be yet another example of capitalism undermining itself through its own logic why hasn't that happened i what so where in his where what's wrong in his prediction where you know what what does he say that that is that is, that is incorrect here that has made i mean if you want to argue that he's just 20 years off from being right fine um but if not you know what what part of his analysis is incorrect so i um i want to read the the following paragraph to the one i had read uh and would like to editorialize first that i feel like we've been in in somewhat agreement here that in the realm of uh video uh, in particular, the distinction between subject of art, producer of art, camera, director, and audience uh, has been collapsed. These distinctions, if not entirely, are much more narrow, and, and there's some blurring of the lines. I would like, uh, Max, for, for, for you to answer uh, kind of what Will just posited, but, but first, uh, the fo- following paragraph, uh, Benjamin writes, for centuries, a small number of writers were confronted by many thousands of readers. This changed toward the end of the last century, with the increasing extension of the press, which kept placing new political, religious, scientific, professional, and local organs before the readers. An increasing number of readers became writers, at first occasional ones. It began with the daily press opening to its readers' space for letters to the editor. Today, there is hardly a gain fully employed European who could not, in principle, find an opportunity to publish somewhere or other comments on his work. Grievances, documentary reports, or that sort of thing. Thus, the distinction between author and public is about to lose its basic character. The difference becomes merely functional. It may vary from case to case. At any moment, the reader is ready to turn into a writer. As expert, which he had to become willy-nilly in an extremely specialized work process, even if only in some minor respect, the reader gains access to authorship. In the Soviet Union, work itself is given a voice. To present it verbally is part of a man's ability to perform the work. Literary license is now on polytechnic rather than specialized training and thus becomes common property. And so, I mean, this is well before the age of substacks and Twitter and literally anyone being able to produce and, and effectively get eyes on any written content they want to publish. Max, this, this is kind of your domain. What's the impact of this change? Yeah, well, you know, Will, in response to your question, I think 
in some way a sort of very bizarro world funhouse mirror version of Benjamin's prediction kind of has happened, just not in the way he thought, right? And it's almost a be careful what you wish for situation. I mean, uh, it, it's funny. I mean, we've been discussing an essay that that really uh, links art and politics, and we've discussing been discussing meme culture, and we haven't yet touched on uh, what I think is one of the most interesting elements of meme culture in the past, you know, couple of years, which is the, the interplay between like meme culture and the rise of Donald Trump. And I know I'm, I'm, you know, now doing what's the, what's the rule that says every conversation eventually comes back to, back to Trump. But I do think in a way that, that Trump's rise is kind of a weird version of Benjamin's prediction coming true, where uh, it's not a Marxist revolution, but it, 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 his rise, especially within the Republican party in the primary was sort of a, uh, you know, a, a a popular quote unquote revolution, like against uh, he he rose based on popular support against what essentially all of the elites wanted, and a, a big part of his uh, of his rise, I think, was this sort of um, you know army of of fans creating uh, anything from like actual memes to just like you know pro Trump material on Facebook, which you can say is maybe somewhere in between the bound, like is maybe a weird form of, of art or, or political expression. And, um, and, uh, and I think that is, uh, in, in a really weird way, I think that is kind of a, a weird version of, of what Benjamin is, uh, is, is talking about here. I, I'd be curious for, for your take on that. I mean, am I totally, am I totally off my, off my gourd there? Or do you see the parallels? No, I was thinking of him too, but in a different part of this essay, and I'm going to hesitate to use the F word to describe him. But I mean, I think um, Trump, uh, you know, his camp, both campaigns and almost his entire style of governing was an almost entirely non-substantive, we might say, re-ritualization of politics or uh, aestheticization of politics, um, where you know, I'll just lay my, lay my cards out. I'm, I, you know, the way, the way Benjamin describes fascism is a whole bunch of public spectacles that the people can feel that they express themselves in without actually affecting any of the material relations of society. Everything stays the same, you know, but the people feel valued. Um, you know, they feel, and so I, you know, I think you're right in that sense. And then there's a, a way that he sees art that kind of contributes to this. It doesn't, it has not like very emphatically not driven people to do much of anything to change the, uh, you know, material, you know, uh, like, you know, the actual material relations of society. And here he's thinking of like a complete change in class structure, not a, you know, slightly different redistributive tax scheme or something. Um, but it has, and I don't think Trump is the only symptom of this led to, uh, uh, and I mean, I can really speak to American politics more than anything else here, a politics that almost is entirely aesthetic. Uh, you know, most, most of what we call American politics is all spectacle. Um, you know, it, it, and, and a lot of it is just like, uh, you, you know, trying to give people recognition or to, you know, make them feel heard or expressed, um, or that they're participating in some kind of ritual. So I think, I think you're, I, you know, and I, I think that's partly what you were saying. And I think that there's a way that people's artistic sensibility fed into this. And I think one of the points of this essay is it can go either way. 
Um, so that like, you know, with this sort of new artistic consciousness um, that, that people have because of uh, mechanically reproduced art, um, people are especially primed for a fascist aestheticization of politics, just, just as they may be for a, um, a, you know, the Marxist revolution, um, you know, where they, where they, you know, critique and then overthrow um, the state. And, and so, you know, in a way then maybe, maybe he is right. And we just took the other path. Um, and obviously that's a very expansive definition of fascism. And I'm not saying that, you know, every single thing that happens in American politics is fascist or something that would kind of be an absurd claim. Um, but, you know, what he means by that is something that especially since 2016, um, it seems like almost all of our politics has fallen on, into. I would like to to push you on, on the corollary there, Max, that is this mass accessibility, mass podcasting, mass writing, more and more engagement uh, from the individual meme culture, even more serious culture, is that sharpening our revolutionary instincts, sharpening uh, our capacity for change, or, or is it doling the strength of our criticism, doling our, our political will uh, and energy? How, which way do you see that, that falling? I would ultimately say that I do think it is, its overall effect is sharpening. But I think as with all these things, it's not, you know, a linear path, right? It's in fits and starts and two steps forward, one step back. I mean, I think first off, one, one important distinction there, which we've sort of brushed over, but I think is important to elucidate is like this, you know, and maybe this fits with Benjamin's sort of very, very loose definition of art. But actually, when you look at sort of this modern internet uh, culture of everyone's, you know, expressing themselves, you know, we've sort of focused on memes, but actually, it's, I would say a, a distinct minority, although a very interesting minority of that culture is like what we would traditionally or even non-traditionally think of as art. Most of it is sort of opinion or expertise. I mean, you mentioned the Substack boom. That's mostly people, uh, you know, editorializing or writing nonfiction or, or um, you know, quote-unquote fact-based stuff, um, which perhaps would fit in Benjamin's definition of art, but it's not really like art per se, right? This, this, this world where we sort of all become artists, it's more, it's closer than it's ever been with the internet and TikTok and, and memes. But uh, the truth is, I think most people want to express their uh, at least somewhat fact-based, in theory, ideas and opinions more than they want to express like the contents of, of their soul through art. And, and so that's one way which is in which this has gone in, in a slightly different direction. Although I think that uh, a, a lot of those those patterns are are clear. Um, I would say, I mean, this is an easy thing for me to say because it's going to take, by the time that this prediction either comes true or doesn't come true, probably no one will be listening to this podcast, but it may be the case that, that I'm not going to say full on Marxist revolution, but that some of the stuff that Benjamin predicted actually is going to happen 50 or a hundred years from now. And that in a way he almost just caught it too early, right? Like he's he really sees, because of the era he was writing in, he really sees film, he uses film as his sort of core example, but really like film wasn't, on a grand scale, film wasn't really that different from the printing press or radio. And maybe actually it is the internet that was like the, that is going to end up being like the truest fulfillment of what he thought film was. 
And a hundred years from now, if we look back, we'll be like, oh yeah, a lot of this stuff actually did come true. It just took like the the ultimate, uh, you know, artistic or, or creative or expressive medium, which actually turned out to be the internet and, and not film. Again, hard to falsify. So easy for me to go out on a limb and, and say that, but uh, I think it's at least one possibility. So I do think the editorializing um, and like average Substack content sort of falls within the general sphere of what he's discussing in terms of documentary filmmaking uh, and newsreels in in much the same way uh, he he's considering what would be fictional film and so I mean I I don't think. Um, the fiction, nonfiction, or uh, news versus art distinctions are maybe so useful as just considering this more generally content uh, be, being his consideration. Do you think? Do you think that the increasing proliferation of it, the ease to which one can express themselves, the constant, just the sheer numbers of how much content is out there? Does that sharpen or, or does that dull our, our political instincts? I think ultimately it does, it sharpens them. First off, I think it, it's so funny that we finally brought the term content in, which is a, a term that I've always hated because it's like, I mean, it could be anything, right? I mean, it's literally just like fill this form with whatever. Uh, but in a way, I actually think it is kind of a fit for, for Benjamin's uh, conception of, of how he refers to art. If, if the term content existed, in his day, you could totally see this essay being called content in the age of mechanical reproduction, and it would, you know, uh, make make almost the, the exact same uh, level of sense. Um, but I do, I, I am ultimately a, a real optimist about this, about this world of uh, everyone being able to, to express themselves. I think that a lot of what we're going through is a just a really rocky transition as we shift sort of from the old world to, to the new world. And I think about, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Ben Thompson, who's a writer I really respect, technology writer of Stratechery, has compared the, the internet to the printing press. Uh, and I think that's, that's an apt comparison in terms of, you know, broad impact on history. And I mean, you look at the invention of the printing press, I mean, split Christianity, destabilized most of Europe. And, you know, I think if, you know, 30 to 100 years in from that, it was probably hard to look around and, and be like, wow, this has been unambiguously good. It's like society was completely destabilized. But looking back now, I don't think anyone would be like, yeah, we shouldn't have, no one thinks we shouldn't have invented the printing press, right? And I think this is, that's a similar type of, of transition. Uh, you know, if someone who disagrees might have the last laugh when they hear this on, you know, they find that they're crawling through our post-apocalyptic ruins of American society and they find this podcast on a broken down iPhone and listen and, and see how wrong I was. But uh, I, I maintain my optimism. I do think, uh, and well, I'm curious to your response to this. No, I mean I, that 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 is that is perhaps right. Um, and you know, there's a there's a way that the sort of um, you know producer, not in the sense of like holding capital, but you know, of of making art consumer um, distinction collapses with the internet. That does seem new. Um, I mean, the people he's talking about, they might feel like they could be producers, but they're not They're You know, there were like 20 filmmakers in the world when he wrote this. It's not, you know, it's not like even now. Um, but I, I, I just want to, I guess, share kind of. The, so, uh, you know, Benjamin gets critiqued in two ways from here. 
and um, you know, I'm interested to see if you think either of them sound compelling, um, or, uh, or or you know they're both nonsense or, or, or something. One is um, so Theodore Adorno, who is one of his great friends, um, you know, one of the founding fathers, Frankfurt School, uh, read early drafts of this essay, um, and was strongly critical of it, uh, you know, in terms of kind of the history of art. Um, and what, you know, what he said very, you know, strongly paraphrasing, um, was that art unlocking critical capacities was nothing new. It's always, it's always done that. Um, and, and, and so, um, and so the revolutionary potential, you know, won't, won't really be there because nothing has really changed, um, in that sense. The other one, which I think is more, uh, compelling, uh, and this wasn't a direct critique of Benjamin, uh, but this kind of thinking um, comes from uh, you know later Frankfurt School figure Marcuse, uh, you know who who basically pushes more in the direction of what we're kind of pejoratively calling entertainment, um, you know, which is that it is almost simply just a distraction. Um, and we were talking about this earlier, not distraction in the sense that this is something unique to modern life that people are like lazy and want to be distracted. Um, but that, but that, you know, p- people like being entertained and to kind of flee from the world and um, to numb themselves and things like that. And that art serves that function more, you know, in, in this iteration or of society um, than it does to stoke the revolutionary consciousness or something. Or at least most art does that, and then you know that's one of the ways that um, we're kind of unknowingly coerced to perpetuate the order we find ourselves to reproduce the social order. Um, you know, it, it is that we don't think about it, and we you know we enjoy we enjoy movies or um, you know fun fiction things like that, uh, and that that's more the role, and that's that's something that uh, you know Benjamin really thought that you know whether people liked it or not, they would all become. Um, you know, effective, effective critics of, of the social order. Um, and that, that, you know, that would enable them to form a class consciousness. Um, and I'm, I, I, I find myself thinking that someone like Marcuse was more right in that, um, that's not really the function that it serves. Um, but, but maybe the, you know, the kind of internet, internet art, again, the, the, what we're describing, um, breaks out of that that mold it's it's possible and maybe it's too young to have a good answer to yeah i think i mean first off i just think in in general you know all all track record all all predictions that you know this thing or that thing are going to lead to an explosion of class consciousness and and then the inevitable marxist revolution i mean none of those have a very great great track record and i think the only conclusion is that uh that kind of broad-based you know class consciousness either uh, is much, much harder to trigger than people think, or is maybe not something that even the majority of people actually want. It's not necessarily just latent there and, and ready to be unlocked. I do think there's an interesting uh, element, though, potentially in which uh, you can see sort of these critical capacities both being unlocked and developed, but also misdirected, right? Or I don't even want to say misdirected, because that implies a sort of moral judgment that I'm not making, but directed not in the in the direction of you know class consciousness and politics but in just further into culture right i mean i think about uh you know i mean think about like the the uh uh you know what you might pejoratively call nerd culture right the like obsessive fandom 
that people have about, you know, Marvel movies or, or whatever. I mean, you're seeing there a level of, you know, amateur critical capacity that is genuinely like incredibly impressive and, and at, a, at, a, at a depth uh, and level of synthesis that is like, I think from a sort of abstract intellectual standpoint, quite admirable. Um, but it's just going into like creating a Wikipedia page for Black Widow that has a level of a level of detail that would be like unimaginable to how people consumed art a hundred years ago, right? Uh, I'm not even saying I think that's a bad thing. I think there's a lot of pros to that, but uh, I think Benjamin would say that that was in critical capacity being horribly misdirected. Right, he'd say that that you're uh, you know the solidarity that you should be feeling towards your fellow proletarians you're only expressing with your you know uh fellow spider-man fans and that you know all of this energy is being spent writing writing fan fiction or something and that you know in that sense art is then a way that you know the current relations of production perpetuate itself um and it's not self-undermining then but it's actually an uh, you know effective way uh, that the the superstructure reinforces the base. I I'm less uh, less uh, cynical on that. I think than than either of you. Uh, I I I would like to note your, your use of the word amateur for that, uh, Max. I I think some some of those works really are uh, art for its own sake. Uh, l'art pour l'art. Uh, Benjamin uses towards the end. That is really a lover of of the object uh, of their art uh an amateur in the truest sense that i i think that is somewhat liberating i i'm not sure that <clears throat> even if you're only liberating yourselves uh beneath the confines of the mass uh disney uh entertainment industrial complex uh that's the marvel cinematic universe or i guess spider-man isn't isn't disney huh it apologies but but nonetheless even if you're liberating yourself within the uh the commercial sphere that that's some sort of liberation of love for a a work of art that that i think is somewhat uh somewhat admirable now he he does think that uh the evident consummation of that sense of art for for its own sake is um the fascist view uh, of art uh, he, he thinks that's the fullest uh, realization of it um, with uh, the <clears throat> life really following uh, the, the aesthetic that that's set out. I I didn't find uh, towards the end in the epilogue his discussion of uh, either fascistic or communistic senses of art particularly compelling or engaging. And I'm not sure if they, they've lost some sort of relevance at this point, or perhaps otherwise, what I sense is that both ends, the aestheticization of politics and the uh, politicization of art, seem to be going well underway in our own culture and society. I, I think our politics is ever trying to transform itself the word we used earlier into content in the most contentless uh, sense uh, of the word. We have politicians now who who it seems are, are not even uh, 
hiring uh, policy directors or legislative analysts and devoting all, all of their staff resources to uh, comms people and, and marketing experts so that they can spend all day as a talking head on, on cable news and really a, trying to manifest um, their politics as a, a grotesque caricature of art. But also every piece of art, it seems, both in the uh, popular context and the fine art context and even in the meme context, is being politicized and seems to have strong political content. I, I'm not sure there's any artist uh, today who who would reject having some sort of political content to their art. And so we have both these forces running up against each other, the fascistic aestheticization of politics and the communistic politicization of art. And I don't know how those can be reconciled. I, I just want to quali- qualify that in two ways. One, one is that he's not talking about fascist art in the sense that he's trying to describe Lenny Reifenstahl or something. Um, he's ta- you know, talking the aestheticization of politics is a description of a political style, not of you know what art under the Nazis looked like. And then the other thing to I I think it's worth bearing in mind, and again it's it's hard to like really assume this position because like I'm not a Marxist and I don't think either of you two are either. Um, but you know when he's using po- politicization in a very narrow sense, and that the only salient kinds of politics are class politics, um, not like when and and the, you know we tend to when we say to politicize things. We use it very pejoratively in the sense to of like uh, importing quotidian uh, partisan politics into movies or something or, um, you know, or or, you know, political, quote unquote, statements during the national anthem. And that's not really what he means. But but I think the uh, class sense of politicization of art is just just as strong. I, I think there are very serious uh, class consequences for for art in our, our contemporary culture, as 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 mentioning the the almost monopoly Disney has uh, o- over popular mass media is, I I think a a very serious uh, self perpetuating uh, capitalist politicization of art, and I I think also in various ways. Uh, the more mass uh, internet art cultures are a, an attempt at, at proletarian uh, reclaiming and their own sense of politi- politicizing art. I agree that I don't find this epilogue uh, to be all that compelling uh, or all that relevant to how how we would interpret or, or, or discuss these ideas today. And I'm wondering if we just are, if, if, if it's just we're so far outside of, of the political context uh, in, in which this was, was written that it just doesn't read the, 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 the same way. I mean, it, in particular, the, um, uh, you know, I mean, this epilogue, he, he goes deep into, he talks about, uh, you know, that sort of uh, all efforts to render politics aesthetic culminate in one thing, war, and he talks about this sort of beauty of an, an aesthetic appeal of war, which um, 
which I mean, you can see the argument he's making about how war is uh, is, is beautiful uh, in a certain way, but uh, I, I find it very hard to to connect much of that to to what we see in in today's uh, society. Yeah, I mean, I love the I, I the you know he talks about how self alien self alienation under fascism, especially, has become so extreme that the ultimate aesthetic act is to basically destroy all of humanity. And it, it does seem to be a good description of at least fascist politics at the time. Um, and um, I mean, this, this, um, this idea of self, self-alienation is interesting and in that we're kind of a spectacle unto ourselves. We can take a, th- we assume at least a third person vantage point to ourselves and that by, you know, uh, engaging in these aesthetic acts of which war he thinks is the highest um, is a way of just, you know, satisfying our need for that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to come up with like a great example of that. Obviously we've, you know, more or less been at war for, you know, two decades now, but it's secretive. Um, you know, it's not, it's not something that it, it, you know, at least since say 2008 or something has been thrust in our faces. Um, and so it does, war at least doesn't seem to serve that purpose. I, I agree with that. Maybe I'm going to renege on what I previously said then um, because I do think our culture has a fascination with war that is wider and deeper uh, in in some manners than any prior. I think you're right, Will, that we've gone to great lengths to hide uh, and disperse uh, the wars we're actually engaged in. But I do think that um, whether it is the superhero wars and violence in in, uh, Marvel movies, whether it is the reality television of uh, cops, uh, the the show, uh, whether it's uh, video games overwhelmingly being about war and conflict. And interestingly, I think... As time goes on, Call of Duty or various variations of the first-person shooter become less romanticized versions of war, less whitewashed uh, tellings of the story, and increasingly more brutal and increasingly trying to force players to make uh, more stringent moral decisions and increasingly trying to put on Throughout what uh, throughout this epilogue, and it means talking about the the beauty inherent in like the most terrible, frightening aspects uh, of war, uh, the flamethrowers and gas masks, and, and the subjugation of man by machinery. Those things we're trying to make ever more present in video games and uh, comic books and literature in most of our movies and I I think that is an odd phenomenon certainly the epic war story is no novelty but in the past it seems like it's always had an element of heroism to it and I think we're increasingly trying to pull out the heroic courageous moral and make it frightening yeah but I mean terror I mean that that becomes so close to the sublime, right? And the romantic sense of just being, you know, overawed with terror. But I, I mean, I think we might need to import a new concept there. It's hard to talk about 
Benjamin like that. I mean, what I have in mind is the, the concept of hyperreality, um, which is the, the French postmodernist uh, Jean Baudrillard uh, coined that. Uh, you know, which is basically we construct a realer than real reality, which, you know, he was writing at the beginning of when, like, the Internet was just at its youth. But, you know, that has in a way become the hyper reality. Video games are probably a good example of that. Um, and, you know, if we take what he means by that to be if we take him to be describing a real phenomenon, um, then then it seems like we've just imported this into the reality we now consider realer than real or something like that. Um I'd have, I mean, I have to think about that more. So don't, don't, uh, don't take that as like a thesis I'm willing to defend to the death or something. But, um, you know, I, I wonder if that's not how it's played out. Yeah. I also think there's a way in which this sort of modern, uh, trend towards war and violence in, in media at this sort of hyper realistic, like small scale level, I almost see that as as being very opposite of this sort of grand, beautiful, fascistic war that Benjamin is talking about, even though they're both war, right? On one end, you have this sort of hyper-realistic, you know, call of duty where you're an an individual soldier and you're, and I'm not a call of duty player, so I hope I'm getting this right, but you know, you're, you're, you're not call you know, you're, you're sort of, you're focusing on these individual choices that you have to make and it's very small scale and gritty not really connected to the grand mission of the war at all. In fact, I think some of the games involve even some doubts about whether the war even has any real, real purpose. Um, and, and, and this sort of, uh, you know, rather the, the image of war presented uh, and the epilogue here, which is sort of, you know, I think of like uh, the, the, the uh, scene in Apocalypse Now where Flight of the Valkyries plays, right? Where you're, you've got mass armies and you're dropping bombs at, at scale and it's sort of, grand and and dominant and and impressing an element on the sort of audience of the war through its grand scale i actually think of those as sort of totally different in in some ways even though they are both yes they're both war um but 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 like the way that we would conceive of war in call of duty or even like the current war on terror is is nothing like the war that benjamin is thinking about and and describing maybe one more example i i want to give for what i'm thinking um Apocalypse Now, to me, uh, in broad strokes, seems rather critical uh, of violence and war. Uh, That that scene with uh, uh, Flight of the Valkyries, that makes me laugh, rather, uh, (laughs) with with sort of the ridiculousness of of how how awesome it is. Um, I I think a better example right now might be something like the movie Deadpool is that a criticism and a parodying of the violence our culture engages in or is that a celebration uh, and lust uh, of the violence and I don't think that's uh, there's a clear answer to that maybe one of you feels differently but I, I think I think these lines have have blurred. Um, yeah, I, I think we've forgotten there's a camera that mediates uh, our, our visual experiences with things. And I, I think we we've forgotten some of the moral lines that that would have 
come along with that recognition uh, of art as film as as uh being very distance very distanced from us i i I think uh the natural distance of uh, a magician the natural distance of the old forms of art i think having lost that has made it difficult for us to make uh serious moral considerations and i think that's that's concerning I think that's exactly right about Deadpool. Is it is it a celebration of violence or a biting satire? It's both. And I think that takes us back to meme culture in, in a lot of ways where they're sort of ironic, sort of nihilistic. The irony is sort of collapsed. I mean, I think about, you know, all of the sort of internet culture around like fast food, which is both like a uh, mockery of the sort of terrible quality and corporate existence of fast food uh, you know, a, a sort of critique of, of all its horrible elements and in some ways a, a genuine celebration of it and created by people who like it in some, at least to some degree, even if they have conflicted feelings about that and whose existence definitely results in the consumption of more of the fast food that, that, it, that it mocks. I mean, I think those, th- those sort of, uh, that sort of duality applies to a lot of, of internet culture. I mean, you could even say that about some of the Trump memes, like, were some of the sort of, you know, you think about sort of the, the alt-right internet people, were they voting for Trump ironically? Sort of, sort of not. Who can even say? I think those concepts sort of break down. Will, I'll, I'll let you get the last word in a second. But um, I think that, I think the example of fast food memes and such are, is particularly salient. I don't think I agree uh with you too when when earlier you you seemed sort sort of hopeful i think this mass culture is is doling our political our revolutionary sense i imagine to an ever greater degree and maybe since since its inception uh for example fast food memes have been a marketing tool for for these companies much more so than they've been um some edgy pseudo rejection of the market or, or, or whatever uh, ironic posturing some some take towards them I think I think the blurring uh, of the lines of satire and serious moral consideration humor and violence commercialism a, and rejection of the commercial I think those just stole our political sense. I, I think it makes us uh, incapable of determining what's real and, and what's not. And, and then kind of like the, the boy who, who cried wolf, we reach a point where we're not ready to act uh, when it's necessary. Uh, or, or we've, um, yeah. Yeah, I think we've, we've become... All these signals, have, have, violent signals and commercial signals have become so normal, uh, we we forget that they're they're not normal. Yeah, I'm, I, well, I, I guess just to clarify, I, I do think that it increases our critical capacity. I'm much more ambivalent whether I think it's a good thing because I think that, that we've talked a lot about irony and that, that any kind of critical capacity we have is accompanied by that irony. And I think the result is that it makes a lot of people misanthropic. Um, that, you know, irony is kind of accompanied by this dripping disdain for everything. Um, and that that's an attitude that doesn't... Uh, um, 
shit, what's the word I was looking for? Um, that you know that that that's an attitude that doesn't that doesn't lead to you know any kind of collective action. So there's a sense of um, atomization, I guess, where you know, and with mass culture in Benjamin's sense, um, <clears throat> that people were experiencing things together, so they could they could uh, develop these critical capacities, but they were doing it they were doing it together, and that's why. So yes, he thought people would become more critically attuned, but the other thing was he he thought it would uh, help facilitate a class solidarity or something like that. Um, if this is uh, also refining our critical capacities maybe not exactly in the same way, I wonder whether it has more of an atomizing effect than an effect that builds up any kind of solidarity, um, especially the sort of internet um, versions. Sure, there are still cultural phenomena um, that we experience together, and those are sort of the traditional forms of mass media, um, you know, but we've been talking about a new form, sort of, and whether that's tendency isn't to kind of, um, uh, you know, undermine any kind of political solidarity. Um, I'm, I'm unsure. And, uh, you know, like we've said, I think it needs more time to play out. All right, Max, any final thoughts, uh, coming from this essay or this discussion, any final pitch for how, uh, we need to, uh, sharpen our writing instincts, uh, sign up for the on deck writing fellowship and, um, reawaken our revolutionary consciousness. <laughs> well, I'm not going to promise that the on deck writer fellowship will help you reawaken your revolutionary, uh, consciousness. Uh, but I do think that for, for any of us who are participants in this culture, or even those of us who may be only observers now, but want to be participants, uh, we can, we can all benefit from, from sharpening our skills. And if we're going to contribute to this, uh, Substack world, this blogosphere, even if we just want to tweet and make memes, uh, we, we should do it as, as well as we, we possibly can and uh, improve our own little corner of the internet, at least uh, regardless of, of what, whether or not it's going to have these, these massive effects on, on broader society. So uh, if that sounds appealing to you, if you want to become a better writer, uh, learn about uh, you know, how, to, how to define your, your hone your niche and brand, which I think is something that you two have done really well with, with Authority and with this podcast. Uh, if you just thought this conversation was interesting and want to have more conversations like this with me, most of the conversations I have for ODW, I will be upfront, are not this highbrow, but I'm always up for them. Uh, you should you should check us out at uh, beondeck.com slash writers. I also want to highlight that we're going to be running a free uh, day-long sort of uh, interactive writing conference and event on March 22nd. There'll be information about that on our website too. So, uh, you know, I don't want to be coming on here and just shilling for, uh, for this paid program. If you want to get a taste and you're, you know, you just want to, to, to drop in and see what we're all about, uh, come to our free event. Uh, I think it, it'll, it'll be pretty fun. Uh, and um, you'll, uh, you, you'll learn a bit about what, what we're all about at On Deck. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to have the links to that uh, down below in the description. I want to thank you listeners uh, for tuning in once again for us. Uh, I have a lot of fun doing this. Uh, and I hope you, you enjoy listening. I really want to thank Max for coming on. Uh, this was an enjoyable discussion. And OnDeck is a cool organization. I encourage you guys to, to check it out. So thank you.